Ibrahim Sama, welcome to another episode of the Hikmah podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us back. Alhamdulillah. Delighted to be back. So in our first episode, we looked at the journey in terms of healing and our first, your first uh, interaction and meeting with Sidi. What I'd like to do is now, inshallah, focus more on the Shadli path and to deep dive a bit more in terms of some of the things, Ibrahim, you mentioned in the first podcast. So when you met Sidi, you said that he mentioned enlightenment. Uh, well, you asked about enlightenment and he said, well, the Sufi path is is different, but he can take you much, much further than that. And also the healing. Uh, Alhamdulillah, you're physically alive today. And so obviously he, he must have, that must have worked. The proof is in the pudding. <laughs> um, so what did he take you further beyond the stations of enlightenment in the Western term of the word? And what was the teaching? What was the tarbiyah, the spiritual uh, education you received from Sidi, what did that look like? Well, you know, my concept of enlightenment came from studying with some Eastern masters. I was in India and I had traveled uh, 
I'd gone with different masters. I had spent time with Shinyata. I had spent time with Rajneesh. I had spent time uh, with some other teachers as well that were over there, all, all professed enlightened beings. Um, and each one was very different, you know, and, and each one, uh, um, you know, claimed to be enlightened. So for me, I was, you know, intrigued. And of course, it was always taught that enlightenment was the highest peak of consciousness for the human being. That like the, It's kind of like, yeah, the, the end goal was enlightenment. That's what I thought. Uh, and at some point, years later, um, you know, I had, oh, I had studied with Mayor Baba. That was the other one I was spending time with. And um, Mayor Baba used to talk about levels of enlightenment and consciousness and you know, he, I, I would study it, but not fully understand it, but but I liked it. And he would go into Sufism at that time. He had a chart of Sufi enlightenment and Mir Baba enlightenment and, and New Age enlightenment, and he kind of put them all together. Um, and at one point I sat down and I, I said, Allah, please really show me what enlightenment is. Please show it to me because I really don't understand it. And in that moment, Allah opened it. He gave me the hall. The hall is a state. It's a temporary state. He put me in it for just a few hours, or maybe not even, maybe less than that. Um, and I had the experience of it, and it was not what I thought. That when I entered it, it was uh, full of light, full of beauty, very simple. It wasn't, I, I was expecting it to be something, you know, like vast universes of consciousness, and it wasn't. It was very simple presence with God, very simple divine presence. And and that touched me and I realized that I, I really didn't understand until that moment what it even was. It was all kind of an illusionary understanding that I had learned secondhand from others. So that that sat a long time until this thing happened with Sidi. And um when I met Sidi, Sidi said, you you you've been here. You know what it is. You you You've touched it, but you didn't complete it. You didn't. You didn't complete it. Um, and I won't go into why. I mean, I could, but it. But uh, it had to do with. Uh, well, I don't know. If you want to hear about it, I'm happy to talk about it. But anyways, so um, when I met Sidi, Sidi was saying to me, "You know, your ideas of enlightenment are incomplete. They're not right. You you haven't understood it." And that's when he said, I can take you much, much further than what you consider enlightenment. And there's no question that he, he has and he did. And and um, from my perspective today, it's like, like kindergarten. Like enlightenment is like kindergarten. Uh, and it's the beginning of a much, 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 much greater journey. Now, in Sufism... Uh, we call that journey, uh, there's three basic journeys. There's the journey from God to the state of unity or the state of God. That's called the first journey. And I would say that that was essentially what uh, Sidi was talking about. And the first journey can be received. People reach it sometimes through the mind. And sometimes they reach it sort of through the heart and everything else. It's like a, it's deeper. It's a more complete experience of that that house of God or the journey, not the house of God, but the the truth of God. Let's call it that. So, um, 
I think that there are differences, and this is something I spent a lot of time trying to understand. What's the difference between reaching it in the mind and reaching it in this heart way? Now, one of my good friends is actually one of the inheritors from Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. So I've, I've spent, you know, we've had a couple of evenings together where we spent a very long time discussing the different approaches of yogi and, and, and unity and, and so forth. And, you know, the conclusions were very similar. The steps are almost identical, uh, except that the Maharishi was going in the mind. And then after a period of time, like Maharishi said for himself, about 10 years, this light dropped down into his heart and then opened up in his heart. Um, where Sufis open it from the heart from the very beginning, is that there's not that separation that happens. So this is one of the differences of the first journey. Once a person reaches, they spend anywhere from a few months to years or even a lifetime in the state of God, in this reality of God, they marinate in this reality of God. And in that time, they are witnessing God's truth. They're learning how God thinks. They're understanding what God is, not from somebody telling them, but from a direct experience of what God is. And it's um, very pure, very holy, very deep. And there's, there's no... There's almost no attraction to the to the dunya to the world. You're almost completely free of it. Uh, I mean, you have to do. You have to be able to drive a car. Have to be able to balance your checkbook. You know, you have basic things you got to do. You know, but but really, in your inner world, everything is God. You're just you're just flying in God's reality, and uh, and the experience is intoxication. You're intoxicated. It's so powerful, so beautiful, so ecstatic that you would never, ever want to go back to the world. However, sometimes people do get caught and people have fallen out of it. And in this century, the last 100 years or so, we've seen that a number of times with a number of teachers who had it and fell. And I think Allah was trying to tell us something with that, which is that this state is not stable, that there's a further state that has to happen to stabilize it so you don't fall out of it. After you sit in that state, there's two things happen. One is, uh, which is the more common thing, is the state expands and expands and expands and expands and expands. And you have people who are very, very immersed in that state of God in a very wide way. There's a, there's a very deep wisdom, a very deep uh, consciousness, a very profound level of transmission that happens through it. You're in their presence. You really deeply drink from that. Um, and there are many teachers, not many, but there's a number of teachers on the planet right now that carry that state. And it's a beautiful state of consciousness. If you continue, meaning that you understand that this is not the end, because many people think that's the end, the end goal. Uh, and even among the Sufi Tarikas, there's a number of Sufi Tarikas, uh, like you mentioned, Meblevi, where that is one of their goals. Their goals is to really establish that wide state and that ecstatic state. However, uh, if you travel further, which you should, because you want to stabilize it, um, Allah will then start to move you even further. There's like a door that opens interiorly and you travel even further. And you travel into a state called the hidden. Hidden reality is a state of 
consciousness that has to do with divine descent. And it's a very subtle world that Allah sends you into, which essentially starts to bring the understandings and the meanings of the truth. So in the second, the first, the first state you reach the truth. In the second state you it marinate in the truth. In the third journey, Allah, as the truth returns you back to reality, that's called the descent. And that's what Sidi was talking about. He was saying. I've completed the descent back into the world um, and I can show you and I can teach you what it means to complete the third journey because I've completed it. That's what he was saying. And I said, okay. So the descent is not easy. You know, people, you know, the descent in some ways is the hardest part of the journey. Many people don't want to embark upon it because in the descent, you have we say you have to become like a crushed cup and that every single part of your being has to be crushed you have to be deeply 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 crushed and and that's crushing is not easy the crushing means that there's like a level of annihilation that occurs that's different than anything else you have to allow yourself to be brought back into the jabberut which is the world of the soul the world of the soul will crush you and then God will crush you from the other side until you can travel through the world of the soul carrying this divine truth present. So we say you, you're with the truth, but you're with the Jabirut. You're with both. It's very not easy to do that. It's very hard to balance that because the truth itself is so subtle. It's, it's like you become so subtle and then you're brought back into a cacophony of creation that is so dense and to be able to carry the truth with the density of creation is extremely, um, I don't know what the word would be for it, but it's almost like it rips you apart. It's, it's so strong that it's, uh, it, it's very hard to hold it. And, and you feel every single turbidity, everything that's not with God, everything that is off it just rips through you and you have to be able to carry god's light god's will god's wisdom within the human creation which is not you know fully present with god and the experience of that is is very 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 um strong it's very difficult to hold it if you can complete that many people don't and they stop there if you complete it then uh, Allah, and during that time, by the way, your your mind becomes pure white. You know, you have what's called a white mind. White mind means a mind that is being guided by Allah's mind. It's carrying Allah's light. If you if you complete that, you will then go into the full Gnostic realms. You enter up into the high realms of Marifa, which is actually a black light. You actually go into the black. And the black is sort of the very primary wisdom that Allah um, creates his reality from. It's where Allah thinks, where Allah is, where Allah creates from. It's like a very, very hidden uh, reality, which uh, is, again, you know, called the hidden of the hidden. It's a very deep state. And if you enter that state, Again, you're more subtle than before. You're going to the Malakut. It's more more difficult than the Jabirut. It's more um, noisy. 
Uh, it's more the desire nature is very present because you're in the desire nature with people. You feel the desires. They rip you in every direction. Uh, you have to be able to carry this deep white and black light now, uh, the hidden and the most hidden worlds. Uh, as you go through the Malakut, which again is extremely, um, in some ways beautiful, but in other ways, um, very, very difficult. And again, you have to be able to carry uh, the realm of, of um, well, you know, the angels and the, the devils. If you can carry that, if you can carry that. And again, this is where many people really fall down. They really, it's very, uh, very hard to carry through that. And we've even, I know people in our Tarika who have reached that and turned around and, and ran away from it. Uh, because they couldn't carry it it was too much for them and they and they chose to back out of that state it's not easy state and this is the state of the crushed cup this is where a law will completely annihilate really everything in you in a, in a very very deep way and we say that you your spirit prostrates and your heart prostrates in a way that it never gets up again you're you're thrown so deeply into prostration that you can never rise from that level again. And if you can carry that, if you can handle the crushing, if you can allow a lot to destroy you, and most of it happens through very deep outer uh, situations that are, you know, like you could be facing your death, for example, or you could face uh, deep, deep levels of humiliation that would like would normally destroy somebody could kill somebody that humiliation can be so strong if you can carry the, the what, what's being humiliated you see the thing is if you're getting humiliated there has to be something that gets humiliated right there has to be something that that is and that part that is humiliated is the part that gets destroyed and and in that place you're 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 you become nothing people sometimes they will hate you you will you'll be the focus of of such a negative intent uh, that, again, it's um, extremely hard to carry out because so much negativity is being thrown at you. Um, but if you can crush, if you can allow a lot to crush you so that humili the humiliation is insignificant, that everything is insignificant, the only thing that matters is God's will and nothing but God's will and nothing but God's reality, then you pass your test. And then God will take you into the final level of Insan al-Kamal, where you move into a state of what you call perfection. In the state of perfection, um, you start to recognize the uh, ability. Well, on one hand, your your prayers are very powerful now because you're, you're being able to pray from, um, from God. You're really God's moving through you in a deep way. Um, secondly, uh, we say you become the house of God, meaning that your heart becomes full of the divine names. You become Warith. You become you carry all ninety nine names inside your heart in a, in a very perfect kind of way, uh, a complete way. And then your prayers from that place are very deeply are very deeply held by Allah, heard by Allah. So you have a very powerful effect on the world because of your praying. Uh, you have a very deep sense of creation by God and your um, participation in it. 
you're still being perfected. Perfection never ends. Perfection goes on forever. You can Allah will continue to test you and challenge you and and uh, see if you're able to carry all of his height. And this is where, you know, like Ibn Arabi for me was probably as, you know, as a non-profit was probably the highest one, honestly, from what I can feel and what I've seen, even higher than Abu Qadr Jalani. He was, he was really one of the highest ones. And, and he uh, describes the many levels of, of perfection of this level. And they go on, there's 70, 80 states he talks about, that go on 90 states that people walk through uh, to, that can, can complete this level of consciousness. So this kind of gives you a, a basic rundown of, of the Sufi way, the three journeys from the, the self to God, the marination of the second journey in God, the third journey, the return from God, with God, in God, back to the Jabiru, back to the Malakut, back to the Malk, and being able to carry um, everything that exists within those worlds while carrying the presence of God and not, not losing the presence of God. Those are, the, those are the states of, of consciousness. Beautiful. So in terms of Siddhi uh, and the practices he gave and the approaches of teaching he used to take um, a seeker along this journey, could you tell, for the benefit of our listeners, what the what the daily practices of the Shadli path are and also elaborate on how Siddhi did some of the khalwas with you for example from what i know at the farm of peace they have a 10-day khalwa uh, which is eight days plus the two for traveling and then they have a 40-day khalwa which many modern which many sufi tariqas don't do nowadays uh, and so i find it very intriguing and uh, and then there are night vigils so could you say something about what sort of practices he gave and how he worked with you I mean, Sidi was, like I said, he balanced Sharia, Taraka, and Hakika, you know, and uh, Sharia meant you had to learn what divine actions were, and you had to practice them, you know, and so you, you really had to know, as we talked about before, you know, what is, how do you use your eyes? What do you look at, what you don't look at? What do you listen to, what you don't listen to? What do you speak, you don't speak? These were teachings that were constantly being taught, but they weren't being taught like you're reading a book on fiqh divine law it was more you were you were learning through watching the experiences that happened in the tarakat so somebody would come in and they would be slandering and 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 see would walk in and say i would like to speak about people's tongue today and how you speak and why are you speaking like this and Allah doesn't like backbiting and, and he would go into a long you know two three hour lecture on backbiting you know and so that was how we learned uh you know, Sharia as as you went further. Um, later, people, of course, were told to read certain books, you know, like uh, the Muwatta from Malik or the uh, Reliance of the Traveler from, uh, you know, the Shafi school, things like this. So people learned uh, thick in that direction. Um, secondly, uh, Sidi was adamant that people had to pray Salat and that Salat um was one of the obligations and you had to follow it and and you know if you if you read his books you'll see that he went in depth about why salat was necessary and 
and the, and the inner intricacies of what Salat was. And, and truthfully, um, I would say that most people who pray Salat have no idea really about the inner nature of it. They're kind of praying the ritual. Um, and I've been in many mosques and watched people pray, and it's always beautiful. But um, I would say they don't really know what they're really doing at the deepest levels. Um, so we could talk about that if you want at some point. Um, thirdly, you're supposed to be doing an hour of remembering the name Allah, Allah every day. Uh, and that was the critical practice of uh, sort of the non-obligatory practice that would move you towards God, the, the, the extra practice. And that was supposed to, you're supposed to be getting up at the last third of the night and doing it then. And, and many people today, they don't, they're too, because they're working, they're tired, I, I understand that. But the truth of the matter is that the last third of the night is so powerful compared to any other part of the day that people who don't get up in that time of the night, they're shooting themselves in the foot as far as the ability to move more quickly. It's got to be anywhere from 10 to 100 times more powerful. So if you, let's say normally it would take you, I don't know, with getting up in the night, let's say it would take you five years to reach something. You don't get up in the light and maybe it's going to take you 25 years. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it, people don't, realize how important that part of the of the practices are and many people don't do it uh city had periodic hawas hawa means we would spend all night in prayer you know doing different litanies um and that would happen usually for most people it happened uh four times a year more or less um but in our group uh at least the teachers you know we were we probably were doing them between 12 and 20 times a year so there was a lot more we a minimum was once a month and a lot of times it was more sometimes which would be twice a month so there was that going on so people were in that um for people on the path when they were ready you could do a 40-day retreat or the eight-day retreat and these were immersive experiences where you were in you know a, you know a private room doing the practices reading the books reading the quran uh, reading uh, whatever was assigned at that time that the teacher felt you needed. And those are very powerful. Those also were really, really powerful to catalyze people into um, higher states of consciousness. Um, Siddhi expected everybody to make tauba every day. Tauba is, you know, I think you all know what that is. But tauba is a practice of repentance, and he expected every day that people made tauba for what they did you know, with the mistakes they made. So Talba is a, was a critical part of it. Uh, and finally, you know, at least for me, I, I can't always speak, you know, see, he was, um, he had taught us how to heal, you know, and he taught us, and he, you know, for me, it was, he he expected that any mistake that was made, we, clean, we cleaned it always uh, until it was clear and clean inside of ourselves. And he expected us to know when we were making mistakes and if we didn't know it he would tell us about it and then if we still didn't get it then he would set up a condition for that to happen you know like he, he would he would he was a master at uh i don't know what you know if you were slandering let's say and you didn't realize it, and he's telling you don't slander because he wouldn't generally tell you directly he wouldn't say to you excuse me ibrahim you're slandering or something like that he would just say 
I don't like slandering and people shouldn't slander. You know, and you have to kind of realize he was talking about you. If you didn't realize it, then you missed it because he, he, he was too polite to, most of the time to say to you, you are slandering. He wouldn't do that. But if you still didn't get it, then he would uh, set up a situation where slandering would happen for you, like somebody could slander you. And uh, like somebody might come and say, you know, I don't like Sama, excuse me, <laughs> just giving you a hard time, Sama. And, uh, and they start talking badly about Sama. And they're slandering, because slandering is speaking badly about somebody. And and uh, and then City would sometimes like say, okay, well, you go ahead and speak what you want. And, and the person would be just walking around slandering, slandering, slandering. But what it did is it gave you, meaning in this case, Sama, the experience of what it was to be slandered. And the experience of, especially if it was, if they were lies, it wasn't even true. And you got the experience of what it was to be, to be lied about and talked badly about and put down. And, you know, you, you had this full on experience of being slandered. Once you have that, you know, you're, you know, inside slander is bad. You know, it's, it's something you don't want. And then you would, then it was much easier for you to look at yourself and say, hey, you know what, maybe, maybe I'm slandering. Maybe that's, that's what's going on here. I don't want anybody doing that to me. I'm not going to do it to anybody else. You, you get it. The city would set up these, these situations like that so that people learned directly experientially um, from, you know, like they, if he told you not to slander and you were slandering, you didn't listen, then he would put it that situation. When you were done with it, you had no question in your mind that you didn't like slandering. You weren't going to slander anymore. Slandering was haram. And and that was how he taught at, at that level. And it was extremely powerful. I mean, you learn directly what you have to do. So I think those were the basic methods um, that he would teach people with. And of course, the other side of it was every day he would work himself on purifying um, people's nafs, their egos. And uh, I spent a great, great deal of time for seven years with him at his side, learning how he did that. And, you know, the bottom line of it was that he would um, look into, through Gnosis, he would look into the hearts of people. Like he would say, okay, this person, let's say we go back to slandering. This person's slandering. Okay. Well, but why are they slandering, really? Like, why? Why does slander move in somebody? What, what causes slander to exist inside somebody? Well, if you really go into the heart of a person, it could be jealousy. It could be the need for power. It could be uh, shaitan reaching inside of them. There's many, many reasons why a person does it. Well, uh, somebody who has marifa, they're, they're given insight into the causative levels of what causes something to happen, like in this case, slander. So let's say you looked in and you saw jealousy or you felt jealousy, okay? But you see, what drives jealousy? Jealousy is driven from experiences, meaning that as a little boy or a little girl, your brother got to go to a show and you didn't get to go. 
You got jealous. Something happened inside of you. I want to go, but he's older than me. Why does he get to go? I don't get to go. You become jealous. So jealousy is based on experiences, and experiences are based on images of things that are being carried inside one's consciousness and how we react to those images. So what he would do is he would be able to understand what was going on inside the person. And then he would remove those images and he would purify the place that had the reaction of jealousy. He'd take it out. How would he, how would he do that? Would he be doing prayers or I, I'm, the stories of him smoking a hookah and sort of breathing out, doing clearing the air? That way, he yeah. worked with, a lot with the hookah. The hookah was a very powerful way of doing it. You know how to do it, which he did teach us, so we know how to use the hookah to do that. For me, I couldn't do it because my lungs couldn't handle the, alcohol, the tobacco. My lungs are really sensitive, and when I'd smoke it, uh, I started to get like short of breath. So I, I couldn't handle the hookah, so I had to not use it. Um, but in essence, what you were doing was you were essentially using or praying to Allah, receiving various qualities and using them to to purify the images. So, and you could do that with a hookah. The hookah made it even stronger. The hookah was like a, you know, healing on steroids. <laughs> it was very strong. <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, it's a great way to use it if you can do it and you can handle the, you know, you can handle the, um, the tobacco. But anyways, uh, that was essentially what, you know, you would sit with the sheikh and that was what the sheikh, he would explain it to you, but he would do a lot of the inner work for you. But the problem is with that is that with, you know, as you get larger and larger groups, you know, you, you can work on transmuting particular things for larger groups, which we all do, but, but it becomes harder and harder. You, you have to teach people to do it themselves because you can't, you know, you have thousands and thousands of people. You can't just sit with, you know what I'm saying? You can't sit with a handful of 10 yeah. or 15 people. It's, it's much bigger. So people have to learn to purify it themselves. I'm doing that. I've noticed Samar's got her hand up, so I'm sure it's something very important coming through. No, I don't know if it's important or not, but I am inspired to add to um, give you a little more, a deeper or a different flavor from what Ibrahim described as Sidi and what he recommended for us. Um, one of the practices that he really encouraged, and I've heard him say or write that um, the Al Weird practice was the most important practice. And it kind of encompasses everything that Ibrahim talked about that Sidi loved. It had Tauba in it. It has uh, one of the pillars of Islam in it. It has a Salawat in it. And it has remembrance in it. You end with Allah. And so he recommended that we do it twice a day. And actually in our in our community, in our Tarika, um, we the Pharma Peace, we offer that online uh, twice a day for anyone who's interested can just join. So that was a very robust practice that I think many of us have followed, even if we don't follow a lot of the other things. I want to just give one example um, of Sidi, who was um, very direct with me. Ibrahim said that very often he would say things subtly or he would give you a message. <laughs> well, 
in my experience, he could also be very direct sometimes. And um, my husband and I went to speak to him one time. I had a question about my work and he answered it as usual in 10 seconds. And then, you know, it's in other words, don't worry about it. Somehow you're making a mountain out of a molehill. Um, but then he before we could turn and walk away, he pointed right at me and he raised his voice and he said, you are not being kind to your husband. You are not being kind to your husband. This is a very holy man. You have to be kind to him. The way I'm expressing it now was like one-tenth of the volume of his voice. And that was such a gift for us because um, we had been tiptoeing around. I was under a lot of pressure with my work and I was very exhausted and I was taking all of my frustrations out of my beloved. And it wasn't right, but neither one of us was really talking about that condition in our home. CD brought it to light to us and there was such mercy in that. Um, we both started bawling and of course I turned to my husband and I, I did repentance and I apologized 15 times quickly to him and embraced him. CD stood up and said, okay, enough crying. And he walked away. <laughs> <laughs> People afterwards asked me, well, wasn't that scary? CD was yelling at you. And I said, absolutely not, because this man carried so much love and so much compassion in his heart that he could speak directly to you and you still felt that foundation of compassion, and you knew he was doing it from a very high place. So um, the, the other thing I would share about Sidi for in the United States, I, I'm not sure he did this in other countries he visited, but in the United States, he would ask us to do sacrifice, to make sacrifice, to give money. And People, you know, all of our money naps were sometimes really shaken by this. Um, but again, it was a gift because what he was doing was giving this money to the poor people. So he was helping other people, but he was at the same time cleaning our money naps and, and cleaning the part of us that was hanging on, uh, was greedy and hanging on to our money. So he would he when he visited us my husband and i we had to put a, together a budget because if not we would have given everything to <laughs> and that's not what he was asking he wasn't asking mm -hmm. us to put money on our credit cards or things like that he was asking us to give the excess uh, not only in zakat um, but to give excess but we had to help poor people and i felt that that was one of his most powerful lessons he brought to us in the united states mm, beautiful so just while we're on that topic of daily practices, I know there is the wazifa uh, of Ibn Mashish, and uh, there's also the Hizbul Bahar of Abu Hassan Ashadli for protection. And I know some orders, especially once you start traveling into the inner worlds, have an emphasis on divine protection. The Naqshbandis, for example, have Shah Waliullah's 33 verses. Uh, I've I felt it's quite important, in fact, and I know the prayers that Sidi prescribed after the Salah, recite the Ayatul Kursi, not have you, uh, and other the other calls and other such prayers for protection. So, is that was that also a recommended practice, the Ibn Mashish prayer and the Hizbul Bar? 
uh, Sama, maybe if you want to carry on. Yeah. Um, and Ibrahim probably can better answer that better than, than I, but uh, I know the wazifa is recommended as a daily practice. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure about the arson of the sea as a daily practice. It is certainly recommended uh, for protection and it is taught in our tarika and recited mm -hmm. frequently. So I'm not sure exactly what CD said about those being the daily practices. Ibrahim, do you have a, probably know better than I? Well, the, the wazifa is a particular practice when people move through the Malakut. So as you enter the Malakut world, you use wazifa, you learn it at that time. <clears throat> wazifa is, is complete. I mean, if you really read it, it takes you from the, you know, from the first to the second and third journey, it carries all of it in there. But um, it's actually probably, I think, one of the probably the most one of the most profound teachings I've ever read. So I love the wazifa. But um, the general usages for for opening and traveling through the Malakut, that's when you learn it. And what it really does is it begins to teach you how to travel through the Malakut, which is angelic world, and then it teaches you how to travel through the Jabaru world and then the Lahut world. So it's all there. But it begins when you when you reach the Malakut. It starts at that time. You know, and his we're we're not as um, his is called the litany of the sea, and that's for actual protection from natural events such as hurricanes and earthquakes and things like that. Particularly for ocean crossings, it's great for sailors. It's really it keeps the the sea very calm. It's a wonderful thing. And, and that's beautiful. So I think we should really now look at the way Sidi brought the Shadli teachings to the US in particular and the formation of the Sufi University, where some of you have the masters from, and the structure, the whole syllabus. Um, what was that? What So I know there is the um, various levels, the so level one, level two, uh, and then the Sufi walking. So could you say something about Sidi's role in setting that up? And um, dare I say, and I'm, apologies if this is correct or not correct, is is adapting the Shantley path for the needs of the modern seeker. You know, as, as you said, people normally would wake up for Tahajjud, the modern person from work commitments can't. And so it's a different audience. And normally in Sidious lineage, people would transmit the lineage in a traditional sort of way. Um, and now we are running in a modern era, Zoom calls and workshops. Did Sidi run workshops? Did he, what sort of structure did he establish for, for, for this to carry on? I think, I think there's a misunderstanding that this is kind of a critical point that you're bringing up. Um, the traditional Sufi way is a sheikh, a Sufi sheikh or guide or murshid sits with students um, in, in uh, and transmits the light and helps the student understand the teachings and walks them, meaning transmutes them, transforms them towards the unity. That that's sort of the traditional shadowy way, but. Over the years, there have been many Shadaliya Sufi universities. There, you know, for example, 
and many Islamic gamers, like in Fez, you know, there, there, you know, there, there are many, you know, ancient universities there, and they were teaching Sufism in their day. Today, probably not, but in their day, they were. So universities are not are not new, and and there have been teachings like this for many years. When when Sidi, at some point, I'll talk about why if you created the University for Healing in the U.S., he said to me. Uh, Ibrahim, this university is, have, we have not seen a university like this in 300 years on the planet. This is the first time in 300 years that a, a healing university has uh, been created. And I can't remember, but I, I thought he was, he might have said, uh, and the last one was in Fez, but I'm not sure. Um, but in any case, you know, he was saying that this wasn't new. They've been here before. They're, they're being reestablished today. And Alhamdulillah, that's a good thing. Hmm. So the fact that more traditional Sufism doesn't know it isn't because it didn't exist, it just got forgotten. Hmm. You know, and so I think that that there's judgment that OCD did this because you know you people of the West need it because you're not ready to sit with a sheikh. I would say that's nonsense. Um People, all you know, all the city's teachers in the West sat for many years with him in different ways. He came to the U.S. six months. He lived at Wadud's house. He was working with the people of that house, which were a number of the leaders. Um, he came year after year after year to the Pope Valley Retreat Center and sat with uh, the teachers there. So everybody received that type of training. And, and often long periods of it. I mean, he would come for six months at a time and work with people for six months, you know, and that wasn't really happening in Jerusalem at that time. People would come for a week or maybe a month or two, but but there wasn't generally a long period. And if people were sent home, he would tell me, I, I don't let them stay with me. I send them home. They're not allowed to be here. They go home. But in, in, in the West, uh, he would sit for that long period of time. So first of all, the truth is, is that that the teachers there did receive very deep personal time with him where he worked on them very deeply um, because of the telephone and everything else you know people would call him every day i did for for years i called him every single day um, mostly about my students uh, mostly about like how do i deal with this and deal with that and um and he would do that and then when i was done he would say now you can ask me one question and I would ask one question and then he'd, you know, we'd work on that until the next day. And we, we did that for, for many, many years. Um, at that time, there were people even in the West that had been part of kind of his earlier teachings where he would sit with people in the Zawiya. And uh, they would say the same thing. They would say, uh, well, you're not doing it this way. You're not doing it that way. Why are you doing it like this? And Sidi, uh, honestly, uh, was very strong with them. He told them to stop it. He said, you do not know, you don't understand. You stop comparing, stop thinking it has to be this way. And and I received a lot of criticism because they would say, it's you're teaching it differently, like the healing, the purification is different. And one day I went to Sidi because I had received a lot of um, negativity about it from some of the elder people. And Sidi came to me, he said, Ibrahim, he said, uh, there are many doors into the house of Allah. He said, mm -hmm. there are many doors. 
they want one door and they think that's the door, there are other doors and I'm giving you another door. Don't listen to any of that. You do what I show you to do. And that's it. And so at that point, I basically said, okay, there's that door, which is the kind of the older way that things were being done. And there's a new door, which is this healing door and the university door, the city saying, and he's telling me, don't listen to people who want to take you through the older door. Hmm. Now, for me personally, um, I don't have trouble with either door. Because they're both going into the house. So, you know, who cares if you go to the front door or the back door or the side door? Just want to get in the house, of the house of God. Mm. You know, you just want to get in. Mm. So why do we have to judge that this door is better than that door? Mm. I think I think that comes from um, a misunderstanding. I honestly do. I think mm. it's a misunderstanding. I so, think that... Mm. Oh, sorry, go ahead. You can go ahead. So one key barrier picture uh, that I've often encountered with a few beloveds in the UK is when they would, for example, uh, meet with Sufi teachers from Ananasdarika, they would certainly play, pay for retreats. So if they're going on a retreat somewhere, say there's a retreat in Turkey, what have you, obviously there's a cost, there's flight, you know, your uh, time there. Um, but sometimes at the university, they felt the cost to be a barrier for, for running a course. And so in their mind, they're thinking, OK, I agree. I love what Dr. Jaffe is saying. I want to go ahead with this. I need to do level one, two, three, and then go into the Sufi walking. That's a significant amount of cost and obviously a university to keep it running, etc. But from their point of view, when they are then saying when I go and meet so-and-so Shadli Sheikh or so-and-so Mefli Sheikh, there isn't that tuition cost, if you like. So what's the, how do you clarify any misunderstanding there? Well, first of all, there there is a lot of movement where people want it all for free. And, and I, I understand that. Of course we want that. Uh, but if you're, as teachers, if you're giving your life to something and you have family, take care of yourself and you, you have your home, your mortgage, whatever, you can't just give it for free. That's the first thing. There has to be some cost. Um, secondly, uh, and City knew that. Secondly, City also knew that people had naps and they held on to their money. And and uh, he was really, uh, what's the word? Um, adamant, I don't know, about breaking money naps. He, he didn't, he, he you know, I, I just remember the first time I met him, we, we were in Santa Fe and this, woman came in very attractive uh sat down you know well obviously you know materialistically well off and uh she said i brought you some money she gave him a check for several thousand dollars for whatever and city so looked at the check and then he took it and he put it on his genitals and the woman I mean, we were all in the room. All of us were like, yeah, what is going on here? And and the woman was like, oh, she got it. Went to her. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> this guy's a shake. And he, what's he doing? <laughs> you know? And uh, it was really, I mean, it was so interesting watching everybody in the room, the reactions to it, you know? And um, for me, I was, 
I don't know what the word was flabbergasted. You know, I was like, I didn't know what he was doing. But I, but I, I, th I thought, I remember I just started laughing. Like it was so funny. And, uh, and I thought, what, what's he doing? Well, it turns out, you know, that she was miserable because she was probably in her late thirties. She'd married like an 80 year old guy to get his money. And, uh, and so her misery was that she didn't love this guy. She married him for his money. The whole relationship was she gave him sex and he, and he gave her money. And that's why she was miserable. So she had seen it one moment and just showed it to her. She got it. She, she totally <laughs> understood it. Well, the rest of us did, but she did. And, uh, you know, I see he had the, the chutzpah, I don't know what the word is, the nerve, to be able to put it so clearly in front of her that, that her suffering was coming from a choice to have intimacy and sex when she didn't love the person. And that's what was causing the problem. So, um, anyway, when I say a city can be very uh, strong with showing people financial stuff, we watched that over the years. CD chose all of the prices of the university, you know, and this was done 20 years ago. We haven't changed the price in 20 years. Hmm. You know, this is what he, and, and inflation, everything else we probably need to, but, but we haven't, we just, we just decided to stay with it. Hmm. Um, secondly, um, if people really want to come and they really can't afford it, we have uh, a lot of avenues for them to be able to come. Um, there are, there's a fairly large scholarship fund. People donate for people to come. And so there's scholarships. If the scholarships end, meaning that the money is used, then people can apply for, you know, financial aid. They can apply for support so you know i'm of the you know i kind of like i like the, what the seals say no man gets left behind if you if you really want to come and you really can't afford it and you show that that's true you can come alhamdulillah and just for our listeners here um who may be relatively new or haven't heard of the university before and understandably uh when you hear about situations where there's been financial abuse or abuse of power, which can happen in some tarikas, I've heard of one case. I won't go into it now. Um, what 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 is the money being used for? So, if they're paying the tuition fees, how does it get used? Does it go well, into one person's pocket, or is it? How does it? What's the? No, in the university, it's used to pay for university events you know we have a lot of teachers we have a lot of staff um our intention is to teach the path of unity to the world there's a lot of uh you know it's not cheap to bring these teachings out you know it, it costs more than you would imagine mm -hmm. there's the money in the university that you know people are paid the teachers are paid very fair salaries uh not any less or any more than any place else and the rest of the money is used for taking care of staffing and and, and the people uh and uh and bringing the teachings out mm. you know to the world and, and actually when you get done with all the staffing and everything else there's not that much left anyways it's it it pretty much washes itself and then in terms of somebody coming to the university now and wondering can they journey through all these stations of consciousness 
you've mentioned the seven stations of the soul, the heart, the nafs. Did are the teachings and the transmission in and of themselves now that it is passed physically from the world? Who is there to oversee the spiritual guidance that he would have normally given, especially for people who have never met him and haven't had that sort of connection? Um, did he leave a successor when he died? And what's the situation around a community that needs to organize itself when, uh, if there hasn't been a designated quote unquote sheikh? Well, Sidi did not leave an inheritor. Um, I was with him the day before he had the massive stroke, and literally the day before. I was uh, up in Pope Valley, and uh, the guidance to go see him was so powerful, I couldn't believe it. I felt like like uh, I'm going to, but it was so, I never had anything happen like that. It was like, you need to go see him now. And I got in the car, it was pure hour drive, and I drove down with my daughter, and I and I and he was staying at Salah Kent's house. And we walked in and we had this conversation in front of my daughter, in front of Salah Kent, uh, about inheritor. And it came up, and and I don't remember, I think I was one that asked, um, see, if you die, what are you leaving for an inheritance? And he said, uh, I have not been given the order to leave an inheritor very clearly. I have not been given the order to leave an inheritor. It was, and then he died the next, I mean, he didn't die, but he had the stroke the next day yeah. and, and never came out of it. Okay. So, you know, there are stories about, you know, this, that, and the other thing, but the truth of the matter was he didn't leave anybody. And, he, and at that moment, there was no, decision and it, you see this thing people think that cd makes the inheritor cd doesn't make the inheritor allah makes it and cd received the order to give it and he wasn't given the order to give it therefore it wasn't given do you see what i mean it's not mm. that cd can say i want this one or i want that one it doesn't work that way mm. so that's the first thing since that time there have been many people who claim to be inheritors from cd and 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 each one in their own way are, are you know walking around saying I'm the guide I'm I'm the new one and you know I think that um, you know you <laughs> from my perspective uh, Allah either gives the order or he doesn't and if you know the order you know it's been given or it hasn't been given so um, at this moment that's all I want to say about it I don't want to say any more because there's yeah. there's things playing out that are. The need to come to their conclusion before anything spoken. What about this role of the four murshids in the U.S.? Uh, could you say something about what City had in mind when he assigned these roles and how they work? And also, did he ever give written ijazah? I believe in your book at the beginning you mentioned how he had given you ijazah to transmit the teachings. Um, could you say something about that? Well, you know, Sidi had Mukadam. Mukadam is means kind of like like a captain or a lieutenant. And Mukadam's role is to bring people, to bring the teachings out and to help the Sheikh be able to reach those people. And there were many Mukadams in the U.S. At one point, we had over 300. 
uh, although we used to laugh because of the 300, only, <laughs> only like 15 of them would actually do anything. So we, we were always unhappy. And city would say, why are these people not working? I made them Mokana when they're not bringing the, you know, so he was never happy about that. So as time went on, there were a group of Mokadams that were really the ones working and bringing his message out and the ones that were, um, I don't know what they were doing, but that wasn't it. So for me personally, um, when I went through uh, the deep crushing and I was able to get through it, um, something very profound happened, which again, I'm not sure I really have permission to talk about, but, but anyways, um, I felt like um, I, I wanted to have some uh, recognition from City for the shift that had happened. Now, rightfully or wrongfully, uh, that was what I felt. And I went to him and I said, City, you know what happened. You saw what happened. Uh, I feel like uh, I'd like you to tell me what you see about this. And he sat for a little bit and he said, uh, and then he did a ceremony. He said, I now make you Murshid Marabi Ruhi is, as a response to what happened. And Murshid means guide, a, a guide. And Marabi means a caregiver. And Ruhi means of the soul. Okay, so he made this. Now, some people might say, well, you can't go to your teacher and ask for anything. If you ask for anything, it's not right. Well, um, that's not totally true either. You know, that there is, that's, that's generally if your nafs are asking, oh, you know, give me something, give me something, you're asking from your ego. But if something truly profoundly happens, that could, you know, like, if you, if Allah gives you the order to be, you know, a guide and you know it, then you also, that's not coming from your ego. That's coming from witnessing. That's different. So I believe that's what happened. Um, and then, uh, at that time, Wadud was sitting with me, and when that happened, because he witnessed it, and uh, and Sidi said, "And Wadud, at that time, I make you Murshid of the university." So Wadud took that that title on, and then about a year or two later, or I, I don't know if you remember the time. Uh, I heard, I never, I wasn't there, so I didn't see it, but I heard that uh, Sidi made Salima Murshid Marabi Ruhi. And then made uh, Rida a Murshid as well. And I, I don't, I didn't hear, I just heard this, I heard about it. I, don't, I wasn't there to witness anything. Um, so those were the four Murshids that were made. Um, and I think that was, by the way, that was in 2010. Okay. And then, um, or I think, I think he made me Murshid 2010 and he made uh, Slim, I think it was 2011 that it happened. And you know, essentially, um, you know, he, you know, he didn't really go into a lot of um, what that meant, you know, like what was the role of being that. And there was, he was alive. There was not much, not a lot changed. If those same people were essentially running the Tarika at the time anyways. So it wasn't really any different, you know, what dude, myself, Salima, were the main people who were running the Tarika and, and Rita came in uh, with a lot of beauty and a lot of wisdom and a lot of love and, and was very, very much welcomed, you know, by at least the three of us into that circle. And um, so after City died, 
honestly, the merchants probably should have stepped in and, and uh, really taken hold. But I think all of us were still shocked uh, about what was going on. And there were certain dynamics going on within our group as well that that caused some questioning, like, well, should one of us lead? Should one of us not lead? How should we lead? Should we lead? I think those things uh, kind of just didn't take hold. In other words, they, I think, I know, I know what dude's case, he was just for a long period in shock. He was just so shocked. The loss of city was so strong. Um, I, I think it just shattered his world at that point. Um, you know, for me, I, I think I had been um, so deeply thrown onto my own for the last seven years that that the sh that I was pretty much working at that point in my own way because CD was like saying, "I'm not here, you do it. I'm not here, you do it." I come to him, "No, you do it. I want, I want." CD, here's a question. I am not answering your questions. You do it. So he kept pushing me into my own what you call it, guidance and not did not answer almost anything for those last seven years. He, he just kept pushing me back to myself. So for me, when he died, um, there wasn't really that much difference because it came, in some ways he had kind of pushed me on my own for years before that. You know, and I think Salima had, you know, I can't, I can't actually speak for Salima. I've never talked to her about her experience with it, so I don't know. But um, I think at this time, I still believe that the Mershads uh, are the ones that CD recognized as the people who could guide the Taraka for many years. And I still believe that they, as a group, they are the most conscious ones and the most aware and, and carry and, and were recognized with the ability to guide people that they had the ability to guide, which means to bring people to the unity, to walk them through Tarka and Hakika and so forth. So I think that um, I still stand with that today. That's beautiful. And just for confirmation or clarity, did anyone get a written ijaza? Siddhi gave me ijaza for teaching the healing. He said, I, I give you ijaza. You are the only one who understands the complete healing, and I give you the ajaza to be the the teacher of healing for the Tarika. And this was back also to around two thousand. I don't remember when it was actually, but it was it was way back. Maybe two, I have to look. I have to look and see when it was. Um, as far as uh, the walking or the guidance there was no ajaza given however there were the ajaza of being mershid like i know that i received a paper a jaza paper that that i was mershid marabi rui i have that paper you know and and what it means and so there was a jazz at that level but there was no ajaza of you know you are the, the inheritor of this taraka beautiful Thank you so much for clarifying that. I'm just going to, I'm wary of time, and I know you've got another commitment shortly. So I'm going to raise uh, this question around relativizing the absolute and uh, the question around the different doors and how people become stuck sometimes by thinking the truth or the tariqa needs to look this way. And if it doesn't look or doesn't conform to their ideas, then it's wrong. I'll 
just read this quote by Imam al-Ghazali, and this is actually an introduction by Sheikh Hamza Yusuf to the book on knowledge. Uh, and I just find it fascinating, so I'll, I'll read it out. Unlike Sufi scholars who came before him and had argued that Tasawwuf was the third of Islam, as it was the science of Ihsan, Imam al-Ghazali's unique contribution was to show that Tasawwuf is, in reality, the animating spirit of the entire corpus of Islam. He believed that without this animating force, religion was a dead thing. He critically referred to those scholars who had failed to incorporate the practice of Tasawwuf in their Islam as formalists, mutataris moon, people shackled by the trappings of Islam, thus, which thus prevented them from undertaking the necessary journey to the core of faith and from realizing for themselves its truths. End quote. And so we know the Quran affirms this when in verses such as um, so woe to the uh, those who establish prayers in order to be seen, you know, and so we get that it's beyond an attachment to the form and making an idol in an in that of itself, and and so they've essentially not gone to the kernel um, and have stopped at the form. So my question is that can that not also happen at the level of Tarika, where people get stuck at the level of Tarika and turn and dare I say turn that into an idol or turn Sidi into an idol? I mean it's interesting, Ibn Mashish says of the Prophet, peace be upon him, Hijab al Atham, the greatest veil. He describes him as the greatest veil. He doesn't it's not worshipping Muhammad. He says he's the greatest veil. So could you say something about how the tariqa and turning that in an, into an idol can become a trap for people on the path? Alhamdulillah. I mean, those are really good questions. Very nice. Um, in any group, especially if you have a very wise teacher like Sidi, you draw all different types of people, you know, and Sidi... You know, was a master of Taraka, but he was a master of Sharia, he was a master of Hakika. He had different levels. And so people who were very drawn to the outer, the Sharia, the you know, you're speaking about that you just spoke about with from Ghazli, Ghazli, you know, these people were there. And there were people who loved the Taraka. There were people who did not want the Sharia, just wanted the Hakika. You know, they're, they're, all of them were there within the group. And Sidi was really masterful at being able to guide each group at their level. But the people um, who are more formalist, you know, they want the more outer, that's beautiful. There's nothing wrong with the outer. The outer is beautifully, stunningly beautiful, but and it's needed. Um, but unfortunately, many of those people, um, they don't want the, the tarika in a deep way in other words the walking of the stations is considered to be pretty lights or you know it, it has to do with you know evolve but so what what you need to know is sharia you need to know the quran you need to know you need to know those things and anything else is is not valuable well that's wrong the truth is they're both needed 
there, there is a need for Sharia, there's a need for the Quran, there's a need for those things. Uh, because they teach you the the outer expression, you need it. And how are you going to ever reach unity if you're slandering people? How are you going to reach unity if you're doing things that Allah doesn't like in your actions? You're, you're not going to happen. Um, but when they then they go the other direction, those people say, "Well, the taraka is wrong, um, and they're you know the lights are wrong, the stations are wrong, the 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 gnosis is wrong. These things don't exist. That's their own limitations." You know, so you know the the right way is to um, know the outer and to know the inner. Both you need to do both. So if people you know uh, are not teaching the inner, then then you have a right to say, hey, you're not teaching the inner. I'm you know, the outer. If you're not teaching the outer, people can say you need more of the outer. I think that's okay. Um, at the same token, if people of the outer say there's no inner and we don't respect that, then they're not right either. You know, and some people are saying, well, you can't know the inner until you have the outer uh, firmed up. There is some truth to that, um, but uh, as even as, as Imam Al Ghazali had said, that's not really the case. You still have, you know, what I'm saying you, you need mm -hmm. to have that. But that can become a veil to the inner. Mm. And it does. The Quran can be a veil to the inner. Mm. Um, and it's not that, see, it's not that uh, the Quran is, is an absolutely incredible piece of work. But if people only look at the words and they don't travel through the inner reality, then they stop with the outer. Mm. That's what he's talking about. It's not that the Quran is a veil. It's the way people carry the Quran that's a veil. Mm. Meaning they're letting their intellect get in the way. And and what about also people who become identified with completely with the path rather than realizing it's a means to the hakika? It's the Shadali way and every other way is not as good or is wrong or or they wouldn't say it's wrong, but you know, ours is better. Um and hence that subtle element of spiritual pride potentially coming in where I've spent 20 years on the Tarika, you're new, so therefore I'm more evolved or better, you know, and, and these things play out. So is, is that something, or oh, the Shantali Tarika needs to look in this particular way, in the way they've understood it, or the way the picture they've made of it, and anything outside that therefore doesn't, uh, is, is, is not uh, correct or not valid. Yeah. I, I think that's a form of arrogance, you know, a form of pride. You know, you, you can't just claim that you know it and this is the way it is and there's no other way. I mean, Siddi clearly said there are different doors into the house. There's different ways you practice it. Uh, and when people, you know, if they say this is the only way, they're limiting it according to their experience. Now, their experience may work. You know, and that might be the way they got through. And they might have reached the unity in that way. And they, you know, alhamdulillah, it's beautiful that they did that. But that doesn't mean it's the only way. Mm. So, I mean, there are other ways. And so you, you have to be careful of, you know, prescribing what you reach as the way. Mm. You know, and about, I, for me, I, I strongly support people who reach through their way. Mm. I really do, because I think they did it. But that doesn't mean that your way is the only way. You know what I'm saying? There are other ways. Beautiful. And I'll just end 
with a quote, I'll paraphrase from Sheikh Al-Akbar ibn Arabi, who says, the jahiluna mutlaq, the, the greatest uh, ignorant, is the one who believes only his opinion or view is correct. And I think the beauty of Ibn Arabi is he encompasses uh, every opinion, in, if you like, but at the same time then transcends them in in a masterful way. Uh, he never excludes uh, opinion to say it's wrong. He says that they're valid, but then he finds a higher way to say, well, is this, you know, he sort of transcends them so very masterfully. Yes. So I'm wary of time. Ibrahim, Sama, thank you ever so much once again for sharing this space and I really look forward to, inshallah, holding another muzakirat, another sohbet with you in the future. Thank you very much. And for, thanks for answering. I mean, asking these questions, they needed to be asked, they needed to come out, and um, they're tough questions. So you, you did a great job uh, asking them. I hope it, it uh, helps to put to rest some of the things that are going on. Um, and, and just, you know, everybody who's listening, remember that ultimately the house of Allah is knowing the truth of God. We have to enter into the, the house and and whatever door you go into it, we have to know his truth. That That's the end of it. That's the end of the message. So may we all um, have a good journey, a blessed journey, a holy journey. And uh, for me, I like it to be a lot of fun. Let's have a good time as we travel. And uh, I will. See you all soon. Salam alaikum. Thank you.